0: Uh, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter three, and we're going to look mainly at verses five through six, but um, this is a passage that's been on my heart for maybe the past six months. and it's a course in wisdom. This is mainly the book of Proverbs is mainly written by the author Solomon. and oftentimes in the book of Proverbs he's mentioning like his children, and he's writing to his children, he's writing to the next generations. and he wants them to be wise. He wants them to have wisdom to navigate the complexities of life. That's what wisdom is. Life is so complex. Life is so complicated. Oftentimes, things are not so black and white. Oftentimes, you don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And how much would we pay for that wisdom? Like when God says in his word that wisdom is worth more than gold, it's more valuable than silver, and then you face these situations where it's just so complex, doesn't that make sense? How precious wisdom is. Wisdom is our navigation system when you just feel lost. It's our GPS. This passage here for me is, has oftentimes been my GPS when life is crazy or life is difficult or it's just complicated. You don't know where to go. You need a navigation. And so that's how I see Proverbs chapter 3. It's one of, to me, one of the best chapters in Proverbs. Oftentimes when I feel lost, I go to the Psalms and I go to the Proverbs. And so let's read in chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Is it okay, the sound? Sounds a little off to me, okay? Chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Get it up a little. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And this verse applies when our will is different from God's will. Isn't that assumed here? Our understanding is different from God's. There's a tension here between what God wants and maybe what we want. Because you don't need trust when your life is going the way that you want it to go. We need it when there seems to be holes in the pictures, when there's parts of the puzzle piece that are missing. When we're in the dark And in general, this verse or this passage seems to say that there's a type of blessing, there's a type of even freedom that can be experienced when you trust God with the things you can't understand. Because nothing about life is predictable. Oftentimes life is uncomfortable. And whether we know it or not, control is always an illusion. It's always an illusion. But can we trust God when we don't understand? There's that type of blessing and freedom you see throughout Scripture, whether it's in Philippians 4, where it's not me in different circumstances, it's Christ in me that will allow me to be content in all situations. That it's... The peace of God will guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus, and I can rejoice always because I trust in the Lord. That's like a freedom that I think is, I've seen it in a few people. They're usually experienced and seasoned saints a lot older than me. But isn't that a freedom that you would want? But that only happens in all our ways when we acknowledge him with all our heart, in all our ways. Because it's easy for me to trust God in a little bit, a little, couple ways. But here it's describing this totality. And you know, it doesn't say believe in God. It says trust in God. Because a lot of people can say I'm a believer in God. But the exhortation is trust in God. And what does it mean by trust? I'm gonna be just be very basic, right? I always th- thought of this acronym I heard years ago. Trust is K-A-T-CAT, knowledge, agreement, and then trust. Knowledge, agreement, and then trust. Like, have you ever gone to, I've been having all these dental issues lately. I've had two root canals, and then I had another like random surgery I had to do about 3 months ago and you know the part that always makes me nervous is anytime you go to like a doctor and they have to use anesthesia right there's a part of me that in my knowledge I understand this is going to protect me from pain I agree with that but whenever the nurse comes in and she just very quickly you know rubs the ointment on my you know, on my gums there's a part of me that's always like do I fully trust that what you just did is going to protect me from the pain? And I don't like it when they move too quickly, right? Sometimes I'm like, can you, like, slow down there, you know? Because they come in, and then, like, five minutes later, they, he's putting the needles and everything in my mouth, and I'm like, hey, 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 how do you know that what you just did is fully going to protect me from the pain? And there's a part of me that's like, I know it in my head, I agree with it, But it's very hard for me at that moment to trust it. But trust in the Bible is always based upon knowledge. Okay, first, it's based upon the character and deeds of the person you're trusting. And in this case, it's based upon God's credibility. We have evidence Of his trustworthiness. That's what we call faith. That's trust. You know, faith and trust are not the opposite of thinking, it's not the opposite of using your brain. It's not a leap in the dark where there's no evidence, it's not trusting in something that's not trustworthy. Real Christian faith is always based on thinking. That's what Jesus basically says in Matthew chapter 6. Like, do not be anxious. Does he just say, don't worry, don't worry? No, he's like, let me give you the reasoning for not being anxious. This is who God is. Think about what kind of God he is. Think about it. Isn't he trustworthy? You trust someone who is worthy of trust. We don't just trust God, just believe, just believe. It makes no sense, but just believe. You trust God because he's credible. And so faith isn't contrary to evidence. Faith is based upon evidence that God has proven himself to be trustworthy. Just like if you went to a doctor again or a dentist and this person is going to operate you. You need to have a certain level of trust to allow them to operate you. That person has to have proven in some ways to be worthy of your trust that they are credible. So what do you do? You see if he's credible, you see his track record, you look at his reviews, you ask for recommendations, you look at his credentials, where he went to med school, you look at the care and intimacy with which he's handled past patients, and there you decide, hey, this person seems trustworthy, and I'm going to let him operate on me, him or operate on me. You trust based on the character character of the person and their past acts of faithfulness and consistency. It's not a blind trust. We trust in what we know is true. In Psalm chapter 13 verse 5 through 6, the psalmist he starts in the first four verse four verses. He's like, "How long? How long am I going to have to wait?" He's out of breath. He's spiritually dying. He's oppressed by his enemies. And then in verse 5, though, this is where he ends up. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Basically, he's saying, I will trust in the Lord because I have seen your past acts of faithfulness. And so he sticks to what he does know about God when there's a lot of things he doesn't know about life. He sticks to truth. And he's tempted to let his emotions overcome his thinking. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. But he looks back. He sees who God is. He sees what God has done. He remembers that he has proven that he is trustworthy. And he says, I will rejoice in that. And in the midst of a lot of questions, we need to stick to what what we do know. Even if we don't understand why God feels so far, we know what the reasons are not. It's not because God doesn't love you or care for you or he's left you or abandoned you. Even if it feels that way in your heart, the evidence says that's not the case. Let me explain what I mean by that. As Christians, we look back, and I hope you'll see that God has never left you. You know, things are usually more clear in hindsight. But if it's not clear to you in the moment, hey, it doesn't seem like God is faithful right now, then you need to look back further, and that's why we have Scripture, where he has proven his faithfulness. You look at the New Testament, where you see that Jesus cried out to God so that we could cry out to God as our Father. You see that he was abandoned so that we would never be abandoned. Would this God, who did not abandon me on the cross, will he not also with him take care of me today? If he did not spare his own son on the cross, do you think he will abandon you today? In the gospel, you have to stick to what you do know. On the cross, you see his loyal love, which gives us reason to trust even when he feels far. We look at the cross and see how good he's been. He's dealt bountifully with us. Corey Tenboom, who has suffered and knows suffering, she says, Never be afraid, or never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. God says to trust him above everything, but in contrast We all know our natural inclination, even as Christians, is to lean upon our own understanding, isn't it? He says, in contrast, here's the positive. Trust in the Lord. Here's the negative of that. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, that doesn't mean you don't think, like I just said. That doesn't mean you don't try to make good decisions, of course you do. But what it is saying that if you're gonna try to navigate life fully relying on your intellect or relying on your intuitions, you're relying on the wrong thing. You're leaning depending on the wrong thing. Do not rely on yourself. And that's again again the lesson of the New Testament, of the entire Bible. We have to learn to throw aside any self-reliance. It's hard. It's hard. There's a story in the Gospel of John that I always think it's, it's just one of those stories where it makes, like, it, at first it doesn't make sense to me, where in John chapter 11, in verse 1 through 3, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And they sent him a message. They sent him a note. And it doesn't even name Lazarus. It just says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's it. That's the note. And it shows how closely Jesus was to this family, how much he enjoyed them. He loved Lazarus. And I like how they're not, they're not sending a message to Jesus because, oh, man, you know, Lazarus, he loves you so much. No, it's the other way around. Oh, Lazarus, the one you love so much. They're calling on God based upon his love, not their love. They are confident in the fact that Jesus loved Nazareth, Lazarus. Lazarus. And so in verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? Like imagine this scene, my friend's in the hospital and he's going to die soon. Hey, but uh, you know, I got to play a couple more games of basketball. Let's wait a couple more days before I go visit him. And then the disciples said, Lord, are you going to go to Judea? Is it a good idea to go to the city that is next door to the city where everyone wants to kill you? From Lazarus, Mary. And Martha's perspective, what would we feel if that was us and our family member? Obviously, they're thinking, hey, it would be better if you came right now. And it doesn't make sense to them, but it does make sense to Jesus. Jesus wanted the experience of Lazarus to do two things. To glorify God and to be a means for leading the disciples to greater faith. First, glorifying God. He says, through this, God is going to be glorified. When people see what I'm going to do, God is going to be glorified. Earlier, he said that Lazarus wouldn't die. And he didn't mean that he wouldn't physically die. But the focus here is not on a dead man, but on revealing a glorious God. He says the ultimate issue, the ultimate outcome, they're not going to be saying, oh, Lazarus died. They're going to be saying, man, God is amazing. And that's what we want people to say when they see us during difficult seasons and people see supernatural strength and peace even during the storms of life. That's when faith shines. That's when it's beautiful. That's when you know something is real. When things get hard, somehow we can supernaturally struggle and believe that he's up to something greater. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us now go to him after he's died. And just again, imagine, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let me show you something. There is something about this situation, this crisis, which will strengthen the faith of the disciples. They will see something that will make them grow. He's thinking of the glory of God and the disciples' faith. And he pretty much tells them, what I'm going to do makes no sense to you, but I'm going to do those things. I'm going to glorify God. And I'm going to strengthen your faith. And I'm not going to go into the rest of the story, but Lazarus dies And then Jesus raises him from the dead. But one thing I do want to point out is that even though Jesus knew he was sovereign, Lazarus is going to die, and I'm going to raise him from the dead, it still says Jesus wept with them. He entered into their suffering. That's his perfect love. He will not turn off his heart even for a second. And we're all going to need. You know, the difficult thing about being a Christian is that you're probably going to face multiple times in your life where you're going to face a problem you can't fix. And we need that. Because we're too strong, we're too proud. And one of my favorite prayers of the Bible, you probably are sick of me referring to this, is when this weak king named Jehoshaphat who struggled with peer pressure and he's facing an overwhelming horde, he says to God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In all our ways, we will acknowledge you, God, and he will make straight our paths. He will make straight our paths. And does that mean our path will be great? No, but he will make it straight according to his plan and design. Psalm 23, verse 3, famous verses. He says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And we will go through dark valleys. We will go through the shadow of death. You know, I like the part where it says, he will lead me beside still waters and green pastures, but it also says, for some reason, our shepherd will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And I was just reading the lyrics of, uh, maybe you've heard of her, um, Susan Boyle, who, who sang on Britain's Got Talent, and she, like, launched her career, and she sang a song where she says, you know, I had a dream my life would be So different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed, now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And that's really, that's really like a downer, but it's true at times, isn't it? It will feel like the valley of the shadow of death. It will feel like the dark night of the soul, as some theologians call it, Whatever, it's, whether it's circumstantial or just an inner battle that you're having with depression or sorrow or crippling depression. And we will feel like we're in a dangerous place. That's what the valley of the shadow of death is. It's a dangerous place. It's a hiding place for our enemies. And if you think about just the shepherd metaphor analogy in in the Old Testament, where a shepherd constantly had to move his sheep around so that they can find new green pastures. And so at times, a shepherd would have to lead his sheep through dangerous and, and scary places. And the simple answer is, why would he do that? It's because he had to get them somewhere better. And the psalmist says, even though you walk through that, I will fear no evil. Is it because I'm strong? No, it's because because you are with me. Walking with God doesn't mean when we suffer, we will never be afraid. But it does mean our fears don't have to cripple us if we keep our eyes on the shepherd. I don't think I'm ever going to, it's just, there's no, there's no removing fear from our lives. It's just a matter of how much can faith, it's oftentimes going to be fear and there's going to be faith intermingled. They're going to coexist together. I don't remember where I got this, but there was a book I was reading on the Lord is my shepherd and... The author says, it was in the springtime of the year, and the snows had only recently melted, the grass was turning green, there were about 2,000 sheep in a large flock, and the shepherd built a large bonfire. One shepherd, three sheepdog, a bonfire and 2,000 sheep. And as the night passed, the sheep settled down, and all was quiet until suddenly the long, loud wail of coyotes pierced the ear. The dogs growled and peered into the darkness. The sheep, which had been sleeping, got to their feet alarmed, and they started bawling pitifully. And so the shepherd tossed more logs onto the fire, and the flames shot up. And in the glow, the shepherd looked out and saw thousands of little lights. What were those lights? He realized those were reflections of the fire in the eyes of the sheep. The sheep had instinctively looked toward the shepherd in the middle of danger. The sheep were not looking out into the darkness, but were keeping their eyes set in the direction of their safety. They were looking to their shepherd. And when danger threatens, we shouldn't just look out into the darkness, but look confidently to our shepherd. Jesus, the author and and finisher of our faith. And in that moment, he is leading us down the paths of righteousness, the right path for his namesake. We'll, we'll say that's a better way to put it. The right path for his namesake. And something amazing is happening to you during that season. You're becoming more like Christ. We may not like it, but often the right path is a scary zigzag, up-and-down, back-and-forth path. And the better place, according to Psalm 23, is a place that leads to our holiness, not our happiness. We all know, if we only, just use the metaphor, if we only had sunny weather in our lives our souls would become a desert. And more spiritual progress is made during rainy seasons than sunny seasons. One other practice that I read about shepherds is that every once in a while, they have to put their sheep through a disinfecting bath and they have to plunge the sheep into this bath of disinfectant. Otherwise, they'll basically be overwhelmed by bugs and insects And at the moment, the sheep, they're being plunged into that bath. They are crying out. They don't understand. They see it as the shepherd hurting them, but really in the long run, he's protecting them. They don't take kindly to what the shepherd is doing, to the dogs who herd them where they don't want to go, or the disinfectant baths that they're plunged into. But it's the shepherd's purpose to take care of them, to see to their well being according to his wisdom, not according to their whims. Here's a question that I want you to struggle with Would you rather sin or would you rather suffer? How much do you value being like Christ versus having a comfortable life? If we're honest, that's a hard question. You know, like, I know there's a lot of fear that we struggle with, but there's a couple different ways we can overcome fear or try to overcome fear. And I thought about this. You know, the first is what the world says. In Isaiah chapter 41, this is what the world says. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Let me explain what's going on here. Here we have God sending out an invitation to the coastlands, those who are not Jews, to the Gentiles, to come to me, come to me. And he calls them to be blessed as they become part of his people, but instead they ignore his voice, they try to find relief from fear, by huddling together up with others, encouraging one another, and saying, Let's be strong together. They don't run to God, and instead, they make idols for themselves. And these things can't ultimately help you overcome fear because fear is not something we can ultimately overcome, just huddle together. And secondly, Especially if you're putting your faith in man, those idols will fail. They nail down their idols so that they won't fall over, but yet they constantly fall over. And so the world looks around, but there's no one to really tell them what to do. Their idols are weak and pathetic. And in verse 28 and 29, But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. These idols won't cut it. They won't save. They can't protect. They're nothing. They seem sturdy and strong, but they are empty wind. But verse 8 through 10 here is how God calls us to overcome fear. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not, because... I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. And around 300 times, the Bible says, do not be afraid because I am your God. There's going to come times when you're anxious, you're afraid, you're worried, but who will you look to? Will you look to the world, to idols, to yourself, or to your shepherd? It's the fear of God that removes other fears. You know, in Jesus, we see this example in Isaiah chapter 11. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Talking about Jesus here. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And nobody gives a better picture of living in the fear of the Lord than Jesus himself. He delighted in who God was. He was in awe of his Father who was in heaven. God was close, yet God was great. And he lived without this crippling fear because his life was marked by the fear of god and i just think of this sleepless night that jesus had this sleepless night where he was overwhelmed and i understand and i'm so thankful you know i didn't why did jesus want his friends with him hey can you guys stay with me and pray with me there's something so human about that isn't it There's something so good about that. Can you guys, my disciples, can you just stay with me up for an hour? But they kept falling asleep. But he wanted his friends with him in his moment of turmoil. That's a good thing. But ultimately, that was not the only thing. There was a fear of the Lord, a trust in the Lord, a submission to the Lord, a praying to the Lord. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to the bones. The beginning of the fear of the Lord is have you repented of your sins and put your trust in him? That's the beginning of knowledge. Nothing else I say will matter if you don't fear the Lord by trusting in Christ. Do you fear the Lord? Have you trusted him? Are you a Christian? That's the beginning of overcoming. Or rather, maybe not just not being overcome by fear. We should not fear in the sense that we don't have hope. You know, we're going to be afraid, but will we give it an enough tread in our minds where we've just lost all hope? Because when fear moves in, hope moves out And will fear of your circumstances drive out your fear of the Lord? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. Fear him. Trust him above everything. It's put in contrast to your own understanding. We need to remember where is our hope. It's in God himself whose love will never vary, who is always trustworthy, always kind, always faithful, and who never misses a single detail. You know, I've been reading the biography of this woman. um, She's basically one of my living spiritual heroes. Her name is Joni Erickson Tada. And um, she's famous for her story where when she was 17 years old, she jumped into like she didn't realize a very shallow lake. And she for the rest of her life has now been paralyzed. She's a quadriplegic, she's been paralyzed from the neck down. And she's pretty famous for her worldwide ministry, along with her husband, Ken Tata, where they advocate for the spiritual and physical needs of the disabled community. And it's encouraging to see these biographies because especially the biographies that show like the ugliness. Not just like, hey, look at how amazing she is all the time. Because she has these amazing moments where she's quadriplegic. She's already had pretty much the roughest life you can ever have. And then she gets cancer. And then she found some chronic pain. There's this chronic pain. Chronic pain to me, I can only imagine. That's like the worst thing. It just this never-ending pain. And then there was no solution they could find. In that moment, she says to her husband, Ken, I believe this cancer comes with a great purpose. And if she could believe that, then so could he. In some strange, inexplicable providence of God, she felt happier than she had for years. Cancer, she told herself, not without a note of wonder, was a gift. And then at the other moment, she says, she'd heard people talk about this sort of thing, how my mind sometimes grapples with traumatic events by casting a cloak of unreality over them. This isn't me. And she's talking about her cancer diagnosis. This isn't me they're talking about. This isn't my mastectomy. This isn't my cancer. This isn't my crisis. And for Joni, when she heard the diagnosis later and she faced the reality of it, The closing door opened up, a floodgate, suddenly it crashed in on her, all of it, the cancer, the surgery, the cancer and surgery on top of endless pain, on top of paralysis, the exhaustion, the loss of her breasts, going back to the hospital, a port in her chest for poison, losing her hair, death, somewhere back in their shadows. she collapsed into convulsive sobbing, weeping all the losses and pain and disappointments here and now and long, long ago, the unshed tears of departed years, I can't do this, it's too much, I can't, she sniffed her eyes and nose running. And she wanted to pray, but the words wouldn't come. Instead, she simply whispered the name of her Lord over and over. Jesus, 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 take a deep breath. Jesus, 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 how could God allow this? How could she go on trusting in heaven among these splashes from hell? Sleeplessness kept her mind buzzing. You are the one God who is allowing this? You are sovereign? That means you have screened and decided you would allow this to touch me, to hurt me, to tear tear me up like this? How can you permit this terrible pain in addition to my quadriplegia? And that was all part of it, but there was another part of her that was sheer determination she would see it through. She had seen crisis after crisis in her life. Was she going to let this new development overwhelm her? No, she would not. This will not catch me off guard, she told herself. This will not throw me through a loop. This will not make a basket case out of me. God is in this. Of course he is. He's sovereign. I have believed that. I will believe that. He is in control. I must trust him at all costs. And it's hard because God has bigger dreams for us, for our lives, than we have for ourselves. But in order to walk in those bigger dreams, we will face greater obstacles than we ever could have imagined, and we will find ourselves compelled to rely on him more than we ever knew before. John Piper says, this is God's universal purpose for all suffering, more contentment in God and less satisfaction in the world. And in Psalm chapter 23, there's this, you know, it says, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But there's a shift. Because he doesn't say he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Rather, the shift is, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in those, faith, in those moments where your faith becomes real, you don't say, he leads me. You say, you lead me. Let me close with this, in, in C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christ- Christianity, he says, imagine yourself as a living house, God comes in to build or rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a ho- quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. He is leading us. In the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with me, you are with us, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Let's pray. God, it's... it's um, whether this is a passage or these passages or something we need to tuck away for the future or right now we're going through a season where it just feels like it's too much, it's too much. And we're bitter that we have to go through this. It doesn't make sense, it doesn't feel worth it. It feels like you're plunging us into something so heavy. feels like we're surrounded by walls. we're afraid. It's so hard. And every inclination of our hearts wants to just run away. We want to be angry. We want to lash out at you. And we wonder how long, how long, oh God, how long. Help us now to cling, to hold on. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. Help us to hold on to you. We are so weak, but you are so strong, and so we want to hold on to you. Please help us. God, I pray that we pray that it wouldn't just be that he is with us, but you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. They comfort me. May your spirit prompt our hearts to experience these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.